I'm Robert Barker, and this is the FEMA Podcast. When I say natural disaster, what's the first thing that comes to mind? If you live in the East, it may be hurricanes, West wildfires, Midwest tornadoes. But I bet for most of you, your first thought wasn't of a tsunami. Tsunamis can happen anywhere along U.S. coasts, with the coasts that border the Pacific Ocean and Caribbean at the greatest risk. But more broadly, tsunamis can strike any coastline in the world and can affect places thousands of miles away from where they form. Though they may be rare, tsunamis are among the most devastating natural disasters. According to the United Nations, over the past 100 years, 58 tsunamis have claimed more than 260,000 lives. That's an average of 4,600 deaths per event, surpassing any other natural hazard. In modern times, nine of the 10 strongest earthquakes ever recorded were accompanied by a tsunami that often resulted in the death and devastation of communities taken unaware. Think about that. Human history with tsunamis highlights the importance of raising people's awareness of tsunami risk which is why it is now the custom to mark World Tsunami Awareness Day on November 5th every year, with the hope that some of these preparedness messages will sink in and help reduce the number of affected people when a tsunami strikes. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Jeannie Johnston, who works for FEMA as a hazard mitigation specialist at its Pacific Area office in Hawaii. Tsunami awareness education has been a large part of her life, and it all started on Monday, April the 1st, 1946, when Jeannie was six years old, living in Hilo, Hawaii, with her grandparents. So what happened that morning, I woke up, we were getting ready to go to school. We went to preschool and I heard some noise and some commotion outside our house. And I went and gathered up my four-year-old brother and said, hey, let's go out and see what's going on. So he and I left the house unbeknownst to our grandparents. When I walked out to the front porch, I noticed that the yard was full of debris. There were leaves and all kinds of stuff in the yard, and everything looked like it was wet. Apparently, the first wave had come and gone, and it was very quiet. We didn't hear it from inside the house. What Jeannie didn't know at the time was that there was a 7.4 earthquake at around 2 a.m. near Alaska's Aleutian Islands. It created a 55-foot tsunami thundering across the Pacific Ocean at an average speed of 500 miles per hour. The first waves hit Hilo at around 7 a.m., where no one knew what was happening or expected a succession of seven waves over 15 minutes. The first wave had caused these red ants to come out of the ground and they were biting my brother's feet. My brother was complaining because the ants were biting his feet and he wanted to go back in the house. So I went back in the house with him and we decided to close the windows because we saw water coming into the yard. And my grandmother said, what are you doing? Why are you closing those windows? And we told her we were closing the windows because we didn't want the water to come in. And so she looked out in the backyard and the water at that time was up to the top of the clothesline, which is approximately five feet deep. And just about the same time, the horn started honking in the garage because the car was underwater and the pressure of the water was causing the horn to honk. Jeannie's uncles, Rod and Eddie, were also staying with their grandparents that day. Uncle Rod swam into the garage and beat the horn off with a hammer until it stopped making noise. And then he came out and assessed the situation and said to my grandparents, we have to get out of here as soon as we can. This is a tidal wave. In those days, we didn't call it a tsunami that came later. At that time, we called it a tidal wave. With the adults urging her to hurry, six-year-old Jeannie ran upstairs to change and picked up a brown paper bag to collect her valuables, her mom's costume jewelry. 
She fled with her little brother and Uncle Eddie out to the street, where they joined a neighboring family and a few others to escape the area. Uncle Eddie led the group with machete, hacking through a tangle of dense hala trees to help the children cross the rough and jagged black a'a lava to get away from the shoreline and head for higher ground. After Uncle Rod was sure that we were okay, he went back to take care of his parents and talked my grandmother into going to the next door neighbor's house. And he figured that that would be safer than, than ours, which was down quite a bit lower. And um, he was just about to go back to the house to try and talk Grandpa into coming when another wave came and Grandpa was standing on the front porch and Grandma was trying to yell at him to come up and he was saying no. And a wave came and it hit the house and it picked up the house as he dove in through the front door and the wave picked up the house and put it into the backyard. It started the day as a three-story house, but by the time it got to the backyard, there were just two stories left. Eventually, after about seven hours, the adults who helped Jeannie and the other children escape decided it was safe to return, with no idea what they'd return to. It was incredible. When we came out from the Psyche's driveway, you could see all these houses. And one in particular was very strange because it looked like the house, somebody had dumped the furniture out and put the house lopsided on top of the furniture. And as we went down the street, we saw a dead body and the adults quickly made us leave but it was it was really terrible it was it was absolutely incredible sight to see everything damaged and including our house on april fool's day 1946 173 people lost their lives 163 were injured and nearly 1500 buildings were damaged or destroyed many victims made the disastrous mistake of running down to the receding shoreline to gather fish that were flopping around only to be struck by an incoming wave. That was quite a traumatic day. I, I remember that my mother said that we had nightmares for months after that, my brother and I did. And um, I had suffered from PTSD because I continued to have, in my adult life, to have nightmares periodically. I was swimming through the hollow leaves, which was what my nightmare consisted of. Everyone in Jeannie's family survived, even Grandpa that got hit by a wave. He ended up breaking a rib and spent a couple days in the hospital. But it was much later that Jeannie learned how close she too came to potentially losing her life on that faithful day. We had a 50-year reunion after the 1946 tidal wave. And my brother attended. He lives up in Seattle. And there were many people that we met that we hadn't seen since we were kids. And it was quite interesting event. And then after he went back home, he called me one night and he said, you know, we could have died that day. And he said, thank goodness for those red ants, because if they hadn't bitten my feet, we would have been in that wave, which was true. I had not thought about it before, so I guess we were saved by the red ants that were biting him. After the tsunami of 1946, Jeannie and her family cleaned up and went on with their life. The incident was rarely discussed. Later on, Jeannie ended up writing her master's thesis comparing the 1946 and 1960 tsunamis. On May 23, 1960, 35-foot waves hit Hilo, killing 61 people and destroying infrastructure. Jeannie also worked as an earthquake and tsunami program planner for the state of Hawaii Civil Defense Division and founded her own disaster consulting company, but without much thought about her experience as a six-year-old in 1946. It wasn't until long after her older relatives had died that Jeannie started reflecting more on her childhood. In 1993, a cousin recommended a book called Tsunami by Dr. Walter Dudley. 
I read the book in one night. I was just absolutely fascinated by it. The book was really interesting. It talked about Hilo, but there was nothing in there about the Keokaha area of Hilo, which was very badly impacted. And that's where we were. A note at the end of Dr. Dudley's book encouraged tsunami survivors to contact him. Jeannie wrote him a letter, and they eventually met up a few months later. He asked me about my interest, and I said, well, I wanted to find out the people that I was with, and, and I also wanted to save the stories of the different people that were involved, whether they were with me or not, because I felt that there wasn't enough about tsunami safety, and we needed to, to have a safety message, and so people would know what to do because we didn't really know what to do that day. And if Uncle Rod hadn't known that we should get out of the area, you never know what would have happened. This spontaneous meeting sparked a long working relationship between Jeannie and Dr. Dudley. They went on to found the Pacific Tsunami Museum in Hilo to save the history and stories of those affected and to help educate the public on tsunami preparedness. Jeannie led in the collection of hundreds of videotaped interviews with tsunami survivors from a dozen different events in eight countries from 1923 to 2011, all archived at the museum. The museum has several different exhibits. Many of them have sound bites from the tsunami survivor interviews that we did. Several of the tsunami survivors have donated things. It's quite impactful seeing some of these exhibits and hearing some of these stories. I'd like to keep tsunami awareness alive, and I believe that the Pacific Tsunami Museum is a good tool for that. Many, many people go through the museum and are educated on tsunamis and tsunami safety, and if they happen to be in a tsunami, the awareness will help save lives. And that's the point of it all, to save lives. A frightful experience as a child led Jeannie to commit her life to tsunami awareness and education. From the start of the museum and survivor interviews to contributing to tsunami research and public speaking, Jeannie's learned that education remains a number one preventative measure that could save more lives. Tsunami awareness shouldn't be forgotten just because we don't have them. I'd like to see the, the state and the city and county doing more. You know, we're long overdue for a big catastrophic tsunami, and one day it will be here. It's, just, it's not if, it's when. It's very difficult, though, because they're so rare and because there's so little institutional knowledge left of people who have survived and are still alive to tell the tale. Whether you have an hour or less to react, often called a local tsunami, or hours to prepare for one traveling across the ocean, a distant tsunami, the loss of life can be prevented with general awareness. I truly believe that everyone should be educated in tsunami awareness because even if you're from Nebraska, or from someplace that is not near a coastline, you need to know about tsunami safety because if you're vacationing in Hawaii or in any other coastal community that happens to be hit by a tsunami, it could be vital to saving your life to have tsunami safety information. And there's no shortage of resources to learn more. You can find loads of local, state, and federal information on tsunamis with a quick Google search. Watch a few tsunami preparedness videos on YouTube or read the scholarship from tsunami experts. But Jeannie's one key takeaway is this. If you're on the beach or in the area of the water and there's an earthquake that knocks you off your feet, run, grab your kids and run up the hill or inland as fast as you can because there'll be a tsunami coming. Or if you're 
in an area like Waikiki, you can go in a steel reinforced concrete building. You can go up as far as you can. I'd go to the top floor. Anything above the third to the sixth floor, you'll probably be safe. But I would personally go to the highest floor I could get to. A Hawaiian proverb says, a person who fails to watch out often loses. Never turn your back on the sea. And that really speaks to the unpredictable nature of a tsunami. Earthquakes, mudslides, meteorites, events that quickly disperse large quantities of water. They don't follow the predictable pattern of, say, a hurricane. Tsunamis have no season. They can strike at any time, both day and night, without warning or little warning. I'm absolutely convinced that my history with being a tsunami survivor has impacted my life totally. I would say for the better, because I've been able to work with many wonderful people and tsunami scientists and with survivors, as well as I think it's been my mission in life to tell the stories of tsunami survivors and to present the message of safety so that nobody ever dies, especially in a distant tsunami and hopefully in a local tsunami. Following Jeannie's example, what can we do now to ensure our communities have resilient infrastructure, an early warning system, and that our children are educated on the importance of disaster preparedness? This Tsunami Awareness Day, take a moment to learn the warning signs and actions you can take to protect yourself and your family. You can start by visiting ready.gov forward slash tsunamis. Preparedness for the future starts today. We welcome your comments on this and future episodes. Help us to improve the podcast by rating us and leaving a comment. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov forward slash podcast.